Hello, this is Chris O'Regan, and you're listening to The Sausage Factory. It's episode 335 of The Sausage Factory. Welcome. In this episode, I chat to Andres Tilkowski of Nimble Giant Entertainment about their time-lapse FPS battle arena game, Quantum League. This is a game that has you teaming up with yourself. Okay, I'm going to... So, you do things, then time resets itself... And then you do another thing that's different to the thing that's going to happen. So you basically create this quantum state of being where you actually end up predicting what your other self is going to do because they've already done it, because you did it before. And this happens three times. So you can actually create like a, a pincer movement or a strategy or a tactical ability where you move things yourself around to shoot yourself and others, not yourself. Well, yes, it's really confusing, but just an astonishingly inventive game. Beautifully created as well by Nimble Giant Entertainment. It's really good chat as well with Andres about how they come about with this weird concept. It's a good concept, and it really, really works, and it's beautifully made. I've already said it, so... Should we just listen to me from the past talking to Andres about how they made this thing? Let's do that. Chris, take it away. Andres. Hey. Hey. Who are you and what do you do? So my name is Andres Chilkowski. Uh, I'm one of the co-founders and now chief creative officer at Nimble Giant Entertainment. Uh, It's a development studio based in Buenos Aires, Argentina. Uh, we've been around for quite a while, uh, and, and yeah, we're one of the biggest studios in, in the region. It's not for the first time we've had Argentinian developer on the show. It's great to have you on, and thank you. Um, <laughs> Thanks. It's, um, I'm sad to admit, or embarrassed to admit, I don't, still don't know enough about the development community in that, in that country, or indeed most of you know, South America. I know it's very different, and... I don't believe there's nearly enough communication between the European and North American um, communities than there should be. Uh, is it improving over the years? Do you think that there's more, it's, it's getting closer, the world's getting ever, ever smaller? Are you finding you're interacting with the other sort of more, um, how can I put it, 
more well-known? No, I can't say that either. You know what I mean? Those other communities. How are you finding things that interacting with everyone else? Oh, yeah. Uh, so the truth is that Argentina is literally in the bottom of the world. So we are very far away from everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, and compared to other countries in similar latitudes like Australia or New Zealand, uh, we do have the 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 other issue, which is the, the language barrier, right? Yeah. So uh, as we were starting in the industry, like our, our, our industry in Argentina uh, started uh, pretty much around the year 2000, uh, formally. Right. Uh, I, I did work in, in, in the very first commercial game that was released in the country, which was released in 1995. Uh, but the, formally, the, the, the industry started in the year 2000. And we started like organizing our own community because we were so far away from everything. And imagine that the first time that we went as a studio, we, we founded the studio in 2002. And the first time that we traveled to GDC or, or an event like that was in 2008. Wow. So it took us a long time because the, the, the travel fares are expensive. Uh, and and it, it was actually funny because there, there were not many outlets to to learn about making games uh, when we started. No. So uh, it, most of the information that we, we got was from uh, media that was like uh, doing journalism about games, but not about game development, right? So uh, the first flat, the first time that we uh, made a trip uh, to, to the US, for example, to, to sell our games, uh, was to E3. And probably it wasn't like the best the best place to go for a, a, a really new studio that has nothing amazing to show at the time, right? No. GC is, is way more suitable for it is. for yeah, yeah. And, yeah. E3 is more about distributors pushing units and then... <laughs> and yeah, yeah. Probably found, was... You probably found that like, why do they keep banging on about thousands tens of thousands of units i don't understand this is not helping uh i've been to e3 i used to go to e3 up until about 2012 and then i stopped because i just didn't really get in i wasn't getting anything from it um so i went to i go to pax instead which is a much better show but um, i i believe so too but but i enjoy every event i enjoy every event uh the fact that we are really far away uh gives us this uh we're always trying to to participate on many events. That, that yeah, and I just um, I just think it's because wonderful. there is no no formal connection like that. I, I think that Latin America is just starting to blip into the yeah to yeah. the global industry. There's a lot of developers coming out of Brazil as well. I found don't know why. Maybe you know more. Uh, but well, uh, Brazil is a huge country. Um, right, right. If you want, I can give you like a, a quick. Uh, history, like, yeah, because it's linked to like how did you make your industry. start? Yeah, I mean, you, you yeah. talked about making your start, so, so let's let's talk so, about that. Yeah, so basically, in I believe that uh, Argentina was probably the, the first country that, that started to 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 work in games uh, as an industry, like with, with the idea of, of making commercial games and, and not as, as a hobby. Mm-hmm. Um, Around 1995 is when I worked on, on this on this game. I was 15 by then, uh, and I met this 
group of guys who were 19 and, and one of them was a programmer and he was making lots of money uh, as a programmer at the time. So he was thinking, okay, what would I should do with this money? Like, should I buy myself a car? Should I save it to buy myself a bigger apartment? Or should I make a game with my friends from high school? Mm. So he, he went for the third option. Uh, <laughs> I, I was friends with some of his friends and they invited me and we, we made like a, a game that was very similar to Dune. Remember Dune 2? Like the first RTS? Yep, yep. Uh, so, and it was pretty funny because we had no idea how to even start. Uh, like 1995 in South America, uh, no internet, uh, maybe some PBSs and stuff like that, but uh, no books about like, how to make games. And it was a, a really interesting process. And for me, it was like, I decided that I wanted to make games for the rest of my life right, right there. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, uh, but yeah, cool. Out of out of that uh, game, like it, it got some sort of uh, impact in our, in our local medium because being the first game, it was noticed by by the mainstream media. So we were on on newspapers and stuff like that. And other kids that were much smarter than us said, okay, if these guys are, were able to do something, we, maybe we can do it too. So other games started coming out from, from Argentina. And Argentina has a very strong uh, entrepreneurial culture and ecosystem. So uh, imagine that during the dot-com craze in the uh, late 90s and early 2000s, 50% uh, of the Spanish-speaking websites in the world were made in Argentina. Because we, when we see something, we dive into it, and uh, and there there was this capability to 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 program things like developers, programmers, artists. So there was something brewing, right? And in 2001, we had this big crisis where our our currency got terribly devaluated. Uh, it was terrible, like people on the streets rioting and everything. And if there is only one thing that was a good outcome uh, from that terrible crisis is that uh, ourselves as, as startups or indie developers that were just starting up, we became really cheap for, for providing services to the rest of the world. And what happened is that we were so cheap that some companies were willing to try us out just because if we mess it up, then... <laughs> We can do it all over again. It would still be cheaper, you know. So that's how the, the Argentinian community started, like gaining traction in, in terms of uh, doing bigger projects and collaborating with other studios from abroad. And so that was the, the Argentinian route, like entrepreneurial, uh, big gaming community, uh, that that sort of path. Uh, on the other side, Brazil, for example, Brazil has a is a huge country, like uh, 180 million population. People, yeah, it's right? incredible. So they have other things to 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 their their strategy because of the nature of the country. Uh, for example, uh, they have an internal market. So they actually released like their own console in the early 2000s, uh, based on, on mobile technology. Uh, so in order to to create games for, for this platform, for example, 
they hired many local studios from with government support and and other things to try to to channel some content into that platform. Or other examples is that they uh, they got a lot of of support from the government that translated into uh, universities, public universities that were teaching how to make video games. So it was a complete different growth path, but uh, both countries kind of succeed on on building uh, a small uh, industry. Uh, right now in Argentina, we have more than uh, 2,000 developers, I believe, and there are several studios. Uh, some of them are pretty big, uh, but mostly working on mobile uh, things. We are one of the only studios that works on PC and console games. But it's, uh, it's been an interesting ride, but we, we still have much more road to to go through uh, in order to to have a, a true impact in the in the global industry, right? Yeah, I mean, basically, it sounds like in the early two thousands, during you know that crisis, you basically contracted work out, going, nope. we, we can do this stuff, we can do all these stuff for like a fifth of what you normally pay, so and we can do it, and we're still we're gainfully employed, we you know put bread on the table, etc. So and, and we, we, miss you. we we improve our skills and. So everyone, everyone wins, right? So it's, I mean, that's a, that's a really, really, really crude way of describing it. It's way more complicated than that. I understand that, and it's also interesting how you say that there's lots of, you know, working on mobile. And I was just chatting to a friend the other day about how mobile gaming has fallen in in Europe and North America. We don't really do it that much anymore. Um, in fact, amongst my peers, anyway, everyone's just dived onto consoles and 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 PCs. Um, so uh, is this something you're kind of exploiting the fact that the market is shifted or what I was saying market, the interest is shifted towards the consoles again and PCs? Are you finding you're benefiting from this? Uh, like the, the data uh, that we see in terms of the, of the growth in the industry uh, is, still points out that, that the fastest growing segment is mobile gaming. Interesting. Uh, yeah. I I agree that, uh, but this probably comes from from uh, underdeveloped regions uh, like Latin America or or still like uh, countries like China, mm. uh, where they have the fastest growing rate, and mobile is still like uh, the most viable platform for different reasons. I don't mm. know. Uh, like it sounds great that people are moving away from mobile and and maturing into console gaming and PC gaming because I, I think that the content on PC and console is way better. Yeah, uh, isn't it? It is, it, basically. Yeah, <laughs> yeah but it, it's true that uh, in, in Latin America, for example, uh, high-end uh, PCs and, and consoles are still very expensive. Yeah, I um, mean, I was really referring to um, the areas I'm familiar with, like Northwest Europe and, and North America, those two regions are definitely they've got history in that part in that game type of gaming anyway so you know and the, the ps5 arrived and the xbox series x arrived and everyone's going oh we'll just go over there then <laughs> and, you know and uh, that's that's what i'm finding i don't i don't the only game i play on mobile these days is threes so <laughs> yeah <laughs> oh that's that's the only game that i have in my cell phone too <laughs> exactly because there's threes you know, kind of it's legally amazing. obliged to play it. Anyway, yeah. 
So that's a wonderful uh, sort of little potted history of uh, South American game development. Thank you. Oh, my pleasure. Hmm. Let's move on. Let's move on because this one, this next question is a bit difficult to answer. Every every guest struggles with this one because it's it's quite um, profound. Not I mean not bigging myself up, but you need to really think about it. And you know, uh, Nibble Giant had been around for a while, as you said. So. What you may have, you've probably given this a lot of thought and probably said things and written things about it, but the question is this. What do you believe are your biggest influences as creators? Wow. <laughs> uh, so I think that I was born as a gamer. Mm -hmm. Okay, like uh, I, I, my first uh, console was an, an Atari uh, and I remember it's it's one of the very first memories that I have, like engaging with with that device, you know. Uh, so, and the other thing is that in Argentina, there was like piracy was the only way to to get games. So games were basically free uh, for me during my childhood. So okay. yep. I played everything. Right. Uh, it's, uh, it's pretty weird, but I don't know. I, I had the, the lack of meeting my, my hero, uh, Tim Schafer, and start talking about graphic adventures with him. And I played so many more than him, you know, <laughs> just because they were free to me and he yeah. had to, to pay for them. Um, so... Uh, I would say that the, the best, in, I'm talking about by, like what kind of games influence me, okay? okay. Uh, yeah. Of course, yeah. I, I love cinema, uh, I love reading, so uh, I, I, I hope that I'm not only being influenced by, by games alone. That would be very bad work. For, for the games that it, I try it, to it, make, yeah. It, it doesn't work. <laughs> I mean, I say to, I've said this on the show before, you know, you need more game developers making games that have no interest in Star Wars. <laughs> that's true and it's just basically that broad sort of like and it, it's happened you know we've got Gone Home and stuff like that or Firewatch and stuff these are games that it just you know they're, they're weird and they're wonderful and for that but anyway but, but you know what the, the, the truth the truth is that I was moved into making games because of, of the, the love that I had for, for games as, as I was growing up mm. so uh I believe that the 90s was like a golden era for gaming in, in, many, uh, in many ways. I was going through high school and I have a, a very close uh, group of, of friends who enjoyed playing games. Mm -hmm. uh, so we would go like every other day of the week to, to this store where they would give uh, games, uh, not, not for free, it was like one peso per, per disc or something, but it was like super cheap. Uh, and we would get every game that was out during that week, and then we would go to another, uh, one of my friends and install that game and, and try it out, and then I, I was, I remember I was like the keeper of all the discs in the end. Uh, and I remember that Graphic adventures like all the LucasArts and Sierra adventures, like uh, those were the ones that that told me about the, the powerful stories that that could be built around around games. Uh, 
then I, I enjoyed playing uh, lots of RTS games like Dune 2, uh, Warcraft, Command and Conquer. Um, and, and then we, I remember that we set up like a, a network in, in the first studio where I worked in 1995 uh, just to work, right? And it was my first chance to actually have two computers network it together. And then we started playing Doom and Duke Nukem and, and that kind of blew my mind. So those are the, yeah, like, the two genres that I... The first land that, that game, I... yeah, game was, was Doom. <laughs> I never forget telefragging yeah. someone like, what happened? <laughs> Did you... What? Uh, are you dead? But the, well, the I didn't games, shoot you. The, yeah, the games... <laughs> go on. Yeah, it's amazing. You but the, the games that I, that I really... Uh, that, that really moved me uh, more modern games, uh, like the, the games that I would like to, to be making <laughs> in some ways, uh, is on, on one side Shenmue, uh, the, the, the Sega open world RPG that, yes. uh, made by Yu Suzuki. Mm -hmm. uh, Shenmue was the, the first game that where, where the, the developer was able to make me feel through gameplay the same feelings that the character might be feeling uh, within the storyline. Oh. Like the, there's a moment where in Shenmue 2 where you're supposed to read a book uh, about martial arts and it's very hard uh, and you, you have to be really zen in order to, to be able to understand it. So your, your master says, he says, uh, in order to, to do this, you have to focus and be able to like grab a leaf without looking uh, with two fingers. And you start trying to do that within the game. And by the time that moment uh, ended, like I was able to pass that, that sort of action-based or twitchy puzzle, uh, I felt like I was zen. So the, the game made me uh, uh, like really deep, do something with my head where I would, my mind would, was completely blank and I was really in connection with all of my senses as if I was like meditating or something. So, so that was an incredible experience for me. So you're telling me that, uh, uh, that, 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 that sort of like ability of a video game to, or, or game or any medium in fact, to actually, uh, for you initially to empathise with the character you were engaged with, and that's one thing, but then to actually alter your own sort of mental state for the better is something that's driven you a bit? Yeah, exactly. Um, it, okay. it was an, an amazing feeling not, not only to, to empathise, but also to truly feel in the character's shoes, you know, to, to yeah. go through exactly the same emotion. And, and even when, uh, like, there, there are certain emotions that are uh, easier to, to convey uh, in the medium, like fear or anger. Uh, but uh, being Zen, like meditating within the game, that, that, was, that really blew my mind. Um, and the, the other game... Uh, of course, I, I enjoy the storyline in Shenmue. I cried at the end of the first one. Like, uh, I, I really enjoyed how how you were able in the game to to go through through a situation where you actually like meet several uh, potential partners to to the hero. Mm -hmm. 
and and going through that those relationships and and even talking uh, to one of them about the other ones. It was like a really intense way of of trying to to show a, a situation where you are falling in love with someone. Uh, I think that that was very powerful in the end of Shenmue 2. But the other game that really uh, that really touched me was Journey. Uh, I remember uh, crying in front of of, of the the screen uh, just by by because I was feeling that I was interacting with a piece of art. Like, okay, they did it. This is art. Like, all of my senses are exploding. And, uh, that, that was the other game that really moved me. So those are the kind of games that I would like to, to work in the future in some way. It answers a lot of questions about Quantum League, which we will be talking about later on in this, in this episode. But, yeah, I can see... Oh, I hopefully. Mean, <laughs> believe it or not, there is some... I can see where, this is, where it's come from and what's driving you, which is precisely why I asked this very difficult question. Because it is difficult and it's nebulous, and some would argue it's a bad question. But... My argument for asking it is you create stuff. If you're creating something, you must be influenced, inspired by something. And clearly you are. And you're, you know, every creator is, you'd like to think. Uh, not, they're not creating things in a bubble or a vacuum, I should say. And uh, no, and you're right. Uh, Journey is a game that I still remember putting a controller down for the first, after playing it for the first time and just shaking. It's like, it's what what astounded me is that the number of people I encountered, and I thought I only encountered one. It turned out to be five, and we said so much yet didn't say anything at all. Amazing. Yeah, uh, I think that uh, what they did with Journey uh, is something truly special. Uh, yeah. It's it, it was really. I was able to to go to a, a presentation by Genova Chen at Dice, mm. where he kind of deconstructed uh, his process, and and it's truly amazing. And it it's it's a great example of su- subtractive design. You know mm. how you you every everything that it's it's more important where you're taking away from the game than what you are actually adding. Yes, you know. Again, it's a, a common refrain in the show, but the creative process is phenomenally destructive because you make yeah. so many things and then you cast so many, much of that away and say, that's a really good idea, but not for this game. And, uh, exactly. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Um, but, but yeah, uh, I mean, there's, there's so many... Uh, influences when when you are uh, when you truly love a medium such as ours uh and i i could like list a series of games from the 90s that that really touched me but we would stay here for hours (laughs) indeed indeed let's move on to the next next question and uh this is uh this is also might be difficult to answer maybe not you might have given the answer already i don't know because you did uh mention a name but uh what oh yeah what's what developer do you most admire in the industry and why uh oh i i think i have a few uh but this is really difficult um so let's approach it by by genre okay, okay? that works uh, <laughs> uh 
So in terms of uh, like, like Genova Chen, for sure, uh, he's exploring a space in, in, in games that, that is truly, uh, that's a new thing, like a, a new, a broader set of emotions that, that games can, uh, can convey in, in, uh, in the, their experience. Um, and I think that, that he's, he's great at what he does. Uh, and and he's, he has been amazing about explaining what he's trying to achieve. Uh, now, in, in strategy games, um, I, I am a big fan of, of Soren Johnson's work. Uh, he, uh, he's the, the founder of Mohawk Games and just released uh, a game called Old World. Uh, of World Trading Company, but previously he worked on the Civilization series. Uh, and I had the, the chance to, to, not to work with him, but he, he advised me when, when we were working on Master of Orion and, and it was amazing like, to, to talk to him. And he's a great guy. Uh, and then, like, I don't, I don't know if, if I could, like, Point, like I don't know if Neil Druckmann is the, the guy who 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 should take all the the merit for uh, the amazing things that that they do at Naughty Dog, but uh, The Last of Us uh, is is uh, one of my favorite games. That is the last game that I I finished actually. Nice. Last of Us 2. Nice. Yeah, I'll, I'll get uh, on to. I've got. I've still haven't done part two because I got distracted with Assassin's Creed Valhalla. But anyway, <laughs> I finished it now, but. Oh boy! Anyway, move on. Yeah, that took, that took a but, long time. Go on. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Open world games are, are just too long for me right now. I know. Uh, that like the, the Last of Us Two had the, the right uh, the right uh, duration for for, yes. for me. Perfect. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but um, so what they are doing at Naughty Dog is incredible. Uh, Neil or or, or whoever, all, all the people that are contributing to to making that sort of marvelous effort uh they deserve my praise and i i would really love to to be able to work on something of, the, of that scale mm. uh, and and then uh from the like arcade or 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 more action-oriented games i i always admire what what they do in like nintendo uh like uh, Mario 64 is, is the perfect game of all time for me. Uh, so Miyamoto, of course, is like he's a god. Uh, uh, and Yu Suzuki, because he made Shenmue and he made my favorite arcade games, including Virtual Fighter, Daytona, uh, or Virtual Racing. Like those are like my, my that's my pantheon. <laughs> nice. That's a fantastic way to describe it. a pantheon. Yes. And well, Kane and Rince, um, we did a recorded a, a recently an episode where we did a whole special on the N64. What a machine that was! Um, oh, amazing! Yeah, the only but, problem with it is the texture map, the texture memory, <laughs> texture memory of an N64 is four kilobytes. That's that's not wow. mem- that's, <laughs> that's, yeah, they were that's a spec. All the textures were blurry, but yeah. at least it was the first one to have like perspective corrected texture and mapping and yeah uh, and yeah. have bilinear filtering they did so, unlike the uh, playstation which had that weird warping going on but now yeah, yeah people look at that and go isn't that charming but at the time it's like isn't that odd <laughs> but now <laughs> yeah, it, people, it was cleaner yeah. it was the nintendo it was 64 cleaner yeah. it was slower 
in 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 the amount of data that that you, you could see at any given time, like mm. the the resolution of the textures and the yeah. the amount of polygons and characters, but it it felt cleaner. Mm. My last question then of the first half. See, well done, you made it. Is this? <laughs> Um, and I have to ask this question because we're a podcast about video games. So here we go. What are you playing right now? Uh, okay, so to be completely honest, uh, it's been we just released a game. Indeed, I know. <laughs> so it's it's been a crazy uh, year, and yeah. I haven't had that much time to to play as as I wanted. No, uh, I did. I did uh, finish uh, the Last of Us Two. That was it's the last game that I I completed, and it was amazing. Uh, I, I am. I usually try every game that I uh, that I'm interested in. Like mm. uh, uh, I, I've been playing Hades, of course. Oh yes, uh, what a game! Oh god, it's, it's incredible. <laughs> uh, and even, even though when it's not a genre that, that I particularly like uh i mean the, the whole roguelike mechanic is like too harsh for me uh-huh. uh but hades is, is a masterpiece it's amazing um i i i, I also uh, been playing a lot of uh co-op shooters uh we're doing some research on that and i really enjoyed uh deep rock galactic uh, oh, I believe right. that's yeah. a great game. Yeah. Uh, yeah. People here at, at the company, we have there's a Deep Rock Galactic channel in our in our Slack, and uh, they play almost daily. And I've been joining them lately uh, because I enjoy it a lot. It's I love the fact that people get so immersed in the world that they start using shorthand. They start talking to them, each other. If you didn't know the game, it's you wouldn't it would make no sense to you at all. Like, what are you <laughs> yeah, talking about? Like, and it's just like, oh no, we got to go do this, do that. Have you done the thing? And like, oh, no, I've done the thing. You had one job. Just do the thing. Like, and it's just, it's <laughs> it's wonderful. Those co op. I mean, for me, I still remember Left for Dead, and uh, you're just like, will we just keep moving, please? What's over there? No, you will stay here, but keep. Mo- Never mind. But uh, no, I, I get a lot of kick out of those. Vermintide's another good one. I like those games, the Vermintide games. If you haven't tried those, but uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I haven't played it. Uh, but there's a, another group in the office that <laughs> that plays a lot of Vermintide, and I've yeah. seen them play. Yeah. Uh, but that was like one year ago, the last time we were here in this office. Oh right, yeah. It's just <laughs> where everybody thing, working remotely do, now. <laughs> people do push it back against it because it's like Warhammers can be hard to take in long doses. It's a bit... Because the world is so twisted and distorted, you get a bit of a headache. Uh, because all the, <laughs> all the people are too big, the buildings are, don't look right, everything's sort of messed up, and it's deliberate, because it is messed yeah. up. <laughs> and that can yeah, be quite hard to take. Uh, but uh, anyway... Well, that's the end of the first half. Well done. Awesome. Yeah. Uh, and now we're going to delve deep uh, into Quantum League in the second half. So let's do that.
Okay, let's go for it. So, Andres, before we go into depth with Quantum League, and I keep on having to really check myself and saying the name because I keep on wanting to call it something else, namely a TV <laughs> show from the 1980s. But I'm doing. Re- I think I've done well so far. If I do accidentally do it, I apologise in advance, uh, and then we can talk about things. Say, oh boy. Yeah, yeah it happens all the time, so no yeah, problems. Yeah, yeah, it's going to happen. I'm going to say it's going to happen. So I apologise. If I've done it already, I apologise. But anyway, Quantum League. What is it? What is Quantum League? Uh, so Quantum League is a first-person multiplayer shooter, like an arena shooter. Um, where two players are battling against each other in an arena that is looping in time. So the, these loops are pretty short, usually 15 seconds. So these two players are battling it out, and every 15 seconds, time goes back, and they play the same loop from a perspective of a new time clone of themselves. So... Basically, what's happening is that as you are looping in time, you are self-cooperating with your previous iterations, with your past selves. So this creates a very unique scenario where two people are are fighting, but uh, as they are looping, more time clones are added are being added to the timeline, and it's very important in the game to utilize to cooperate in order to beat the the opponent because there are many interesting things that with paradoxical results that you can do that add layers and layers of strategy to to the formula and so just... it's a it's a game that is pretty hard to describe but basically it's that it's a time looping first person shooter uh with self cooperation yes imagine a teammate who actually is in the right place at the right time. <laughs> I know, right? Weird. Rather than wandering off going, oh, look, a shiny thing. No, don't look at the shiny thing. <laughs> Just actually do what I asked you to do because yeah, it's, you it's, are it's, doing the thing. It's a game where you cannot blame your teammates because no. your teammates are you. <laughs> no, you can blame your past self, though, and we've all done that. Yeah, it happens. <laughs> but um, yeah, so Quantum League, uh, it's, you've done a great job of describing it. I mean, probably you, I know you've done it many, many times, but until you've experienced it, it's difficult. And indeed, even when you watch a video of it, it's still not clear until you actually do it. And you go, oh, wait a second. I can put myself there, but a sacrificial lamb. So they're going to get knocked out. That's fine. But when the other player's messing with that, I can now nick round the other side and flank them, and then the last <laughs> and and then the last one. Well, they're just going to take this position and you know get the get the get the glory because the other four clone time clones are shooting at each other. It's great. The trouble is the other yeah. players thinking this as well, but that's not the point. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's a that's a problematic part exactly. Uh, when actually when the the idea for Quantum League. Uh, came out from there was one designer in the studio that previously worked on a uh, on a strategy tactical game uh, very much like XCOM you know mm-hmm. and his boss 
uh, was always telling him like, no, this is not going to sell. We need to turn it into a real-time first-person shooter, you know, like what a boss would say to uh, to a designer. And for many designers, that, that kind of, of thing would go like, oh, my boss is crazy, right? right? But for this guy in particular, his name is Baltazar, uh, he's that kind of person who that, that, that tries to to make sense out of anything that happens through his mind. Like he, he wants to make everything work and and tackle the, the most difficult problems. So when, when he was thinking, okay, but how, how would a game like XCOM work in first person real time, right? And the problem is that when, when you're moving a piece in, in XCOM, you're moving your, your soldier, your little soldier, uh, then you, you, you see that you find an alien, right? You spot an alien. And because it's turn-based and first the human plays and then the aliens play, when, when you're moving your second unit in XCOM, uh, you already move your first one. So you have the information of what happened with, with, with your first move and you know that that alien is over there. So the decision that you are going to make as with your second unit is based on the fact that you know that the other alien is going to be there. Yeah. So tactical awareness. You, tactical exactly, awareness. Exactly. Yeah. But as, as you are, uh, if you consider that in terms of this is discrete turns, right? So you're moving uh, pieces one after the other. But technically, the, if you look at this from a real time point of view, this all happened at the same time. Like all the, it's not like one soldier moves, then he says, okay, now you can move, and then the other moves. No, everybody moves at the same time. So, uh, Baltasar was trying to say, okay, what if, if I'm moving several characters, uh, but I can only control one, and I'm moving the second character, but I know that there's information about something that happened, how would I know about something that happened that already happened? And the only way to, to know to see something that already happened is to go back in time to see it again. So that's when he connected this idea of uh, using time travel as a way to to play a game, a strategic, a strategic tactical game in real time. And and that's how the, the concept for the mechanics in Quantum League started brewing. We're going to delve into that later on, but a wonderful history of like saying. Okay, well, I still want to make a tactical game. Sorry, correction. Strategic game. Strategic game, yeah. But uh, how are we going to do that in uh, FPS? Because no one does that. It's dumb, unless it's full spectrum warrior. But that's a different story. So, we're going, we're going to talk about the field of view. Because that's the first thing that grabbed, sort of struck me about Quantum League. In that it's critical to know where your past selves are going to go and are when it's your when you when you actually the, the the time loop starts again so how have you found designing that to making sure that the player is sufficiently given enough chance to see where everything is and given enough time to react to that um so I think that it's not mostly about the, the field of view. Like the, the mm. field of view, like the, the camera work in, in the game mm. uh, is pretty standard compared to other shooters. Like okay. we we wanted the when when we started 
designing the game, we set ourselves uh, three important pillars that guided us through the, for the vision of the game, through the development. And one of those pillars is, uh, was that the game needs to be uh, a really fun shooter. And in the, the description of, of that pillar uh, was that we, we need to allow people that are playing other shooters to be able to, to enjoy our shooter without uh, having to readapt or to relearn many things, right? So we didn't want the, the time travel mechanics to have a negative impact on the first-person feel. Uh, so most of the, of the work that we did in order to, to help people uh, understand where they are located uh, was went into the map itself. Okay, and and the and the overall artistic uh, choices that we make around maps and uh, and the art, art of the game in general. Um, so you're playing for 15 seconds and you're swapping from uh, time clone to time clone. And even if nobody scores in the first 15 seconds, you move on to the second 15 seconds. So now that the clones will start from the place where they were as they ended the previous loop. So. You need to reacquaint yourself with, with your situation very quickly. And that's why we decided that we needed simple lines uh, and bright colors, like red side, blue side, so you can readjust yourself to, to your current situation very quickly. It's like, it looks like a sports arena, and we're going to talk about that later on. But yeah, I can see Yeah, uh, actually, the, the, sports, the whole sports thing... Uh, yeah. It wasn't our, our original idea. No. Okay, our original idea was like uh, crazy uh, time travelers, like uh, a war between time travelers trying more like Tenet, you know, like this group is trying to alter the the course of time, and this other group is trying to avoid that from happening because it could be worse. Uh, and we would have like different locations uh, across the globe and in, in different timelines. Uh, and we had all these crazy ideas for effects and, and stuff uh, around this. But the, the problem was that in only 15 seconds, you don't have that much time to appreciate like these amazing locations. And also, they were kind of confusing. Like the first maps that we made, uh, as, as people were moving from time clone to time clone in, in every few seconds, uh, they got confused. So we said, and, and the other thing is that if you have such a short uh, loop, uh, movement is very uh, like it's it's a very hard limit on, on what people can do in 15 seconds. You can only move uh, through a, a few meters each each way, right? So we we realized that our maps had to be symmetrical because if you have asymmetrical maps, those uh, differences in, in movement capacity because of, of the size of each of the of the sides of the map would be very, very difficult to, to overcome. To, it would really unbalance the game. So we knew that we had to have small maps. They had to be symmetrical and they had to be simple. And we needed some sort of color uh, coding or, or something so people can readjust themselves and know that they were looking south or north or something. We said, oh, this is perfect for, an, for a sports arena. Yeah, um, it basically wrote itself, didn't it? It basically said, this is a sports game because no one's actually getting killed. <laughs> That's Exactly, thing. exactly. It's just like, it's a blood sport without they, any real, yeah. It just, they are just traveling back in time to, to not die. <laughs> yeah, amazing. 
I want to ask about this other aspect of um, the game, which we've delved into already, but I want to talk about the, the core concept here is that with Quantum League, we have a situation where you can position your plays like in an American football game very, very sort of accurately. You can, to a point where you know exactly where you're going to be or where something is going to happen or where something has happened because you've already made it happen. You've made that play. You've made that position. It's there. The catch is going to be there kind of thing. So you can actually project and, and make a move and uh, counter whatever the play is the other plus person has. So you've basically infused what is traditionally a very tactical experience with layers of strategy. How have you found this has impacted players as they've been playtesting this and realising that's what's going on? What have you found has been the most uh, um, surprising thing to see, to see how people have uh, altered their behaviour when they're playing Quantum League? Because they, when I was guilty of this, I dived into it thinking it's, oh, it's a team shooter. No, it's not. It's really not. Um, what, how, I mean, how long is it, basically just... How, do, how long does it take people to really adjust and realise that this is not what they think it is? <laughs> uh, so, to be completely honest, when we started the, the development of the game, we didn't realise the, the strategic depth that the, the, game, uh, the game experience could, could offer. Mm-hmm. Um, we, it's like we took it as... The, the, the idea was sounded cool, like adding time travel to a multiplayer shooter, that sounds cool. Uh, and, but it was very difficult to explain, even to ourselves. And we made a prototype, and the prototype, like we, people raved when they saw the prototype because the match ended with like a last second headshot as the, time, the timeline was collapsing into slow motion, and everybody was like, wow. So we, we knew that we had some, something interesting, but we didn't know that like the, the true depth that the game had. And, and that depth is something that we founded as, as we played the game more and as we understand, as we grew our, our fourth dimensional legs, you know? Because the, the game is, in, in some ways, about, like most games uh, are about uh, understanding, like movement, positioning, uh, understanding your environment, right? Like your positioning yourself in three dimensions in the right position, right? Uh, but in, in our case, you have to think about that fourth dimension. You have to remember what was happening at that location at any, at any given point in time. Uh, so as, as we were trying to understand what we were doing, we realized that by allowing you to replay the, the same section of time, what we are doing is, in game design terms, we are adding perfect information for the player. It's like the difference between like uh, poker and chess is that th- there are there is strategy or in both I guess but poker is more tactical because you you don't see the the cards of your opponent and but you can infer what he might have as his betting and or he's picking cards if you're playing close poker or something uh, so you can play tactically because you are inferring quickly uh, about what the, the, the other player is doing or the, the, 
the hand that he has uh, as you are gaining some information. In our case, you for parts of the game, you have perfect information of what's going to happen. So it's more like chess. You know that that guy is going to be there and you know that you can take him out. But the problem is that at the same time, in real time, your opponent has the same information. So it's a mixture of, of strategy and tactics because you have to react to to the live clone at the same time. Yeah, because which can really destroy your strategy. Yeah, with with chess, but, you know, you can, you will always take that piece. Whereas in exactly. quantum league, you know, the pawn might not be there anymore. Like what? Yeah, it's just like. <laughs> Wait, hang on. I thought no, it's gone away now. It's just like it's 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 wonderful. It's wonderful. And exactly. Uh, and actually, one of the most uh, interesting things uh, happened with uh, when we were dealing with death. You know, uh, but it's like that's another very complex topic. Like that, what happens when when the character dies? You know. So, what what do we do with the rest of the fifteen seconds? Yeah, and, and this what, what happens yeah. if you actually manage yeah. to to kill the person that killed you so you wouldn't have died. Right? Yeah. Paradox. And that adds a great deal of strategy to to yeah. to the game. Too. Which is the, the ghost play. Uh, playing as a ghost, which is the my next question, you know. How did oh. that come about? How did the the idea of that well, you're dead, but you can still do stuff and you might even resurrect yourself if you hit a heal point. How did that idea come about? How did the idea of ghost play, which is what I believe it's called in Quantum League, how did that come about? Um, so uh, when we were uh, developing the game, um, like the very early uh, prototypes, when you when you died, you were just you started to to be to become an spectator, like in other shooters, right? So you became an spectator and you just moved the camera around and that was it. But then we realized that the most interesting promise that we were making to, to our players, uh, if they if they liked the idea of a time-traveling shooter, is that the, the coolest thing that you can do in time travel is to avoid certain things from happening and change the timeline. So to uh, the most interesting thing would be to be able to avoid your own death, right? So if I can kill you before you kill me, I would have never died. So the problem was that, okay, let, let's do that. So what happens in the, let's say that in, in your, the first round, the first loop, uh, we shoot at each other and, and you kill me, right? In my second round, I managed to, to kill your first clone be before he killed my first clone. So my first clone would have never died. And what is he going to do then? Uh, if if he, if the player went into spectator mode, he would have like no input. So ideas that we consider were like, okay, we give that clone an AI, and he comes back to life. And after the point where he was uh, unkilled, let's say, <laughs> uh, he would play as an AI. Uh, and to be honest, we had a very small team and. And like developing an AI for that was like too demanding. So the first uh, approach that we took is, okay, what if we allow you to continue playing? So you can record the potential actions that you might do in case you don't die. 
And, and to be honest, we were not thinking much about what you could do when you were dead, because there's an, an outcome uh, of this mechanic, which is that when you die, you get to continue playing, but you are invisible to your opponent, right? And what blew our mind is when someone in the studio realized that he could like find a way to commit suicide, to, to kill his own clone, and automatically and kill him in the future, so he would be able to have the, the tactical advantage or the strategic advantage in this case to, to be uh, invisible to, to the enemy, right? And so maybe I, I should describe the, the situation. Imagine yeah, yeah. that it's really weird. It's, but go on. It's called the it's called the, 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 the we call it the barrel strat. And right. and this was taken to, to the extremes by the community, right? Yeah. Uh, but there's a barrel in the in the court that yep. is an explosive barrel, typical thing in a shooter, right? Yeah, red, red barrel. You got to shoot them. It's just you know, exactly. law. It's an axiom. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so imagine that what you do is with your first uh, time clone in the first loop, you run into the barrel and you fire at the barrel when you you have it right in front of you. So the barrel explodes and you explode with it, right? So. Yeah. Yeah. This happened, let's say, in the sixth second. Uh, now, uh, time goes back. Uh, no, before time goes back, you have to play for the remaining uh, nine seconds of the, of the loop, right? So you decide, as a ghost, to flank to the right and at, go at the center at the end, firing like crazy. Uh, with your second clone, what you do is you run again towards that explosion that happens in the sixth second, and you die the same way that your first clone died. Yeah. And then you flanked to the left uh, and jump on top of something and uh, attack the center, uh, firing like crazy from the other side. <laughs> now, with your third clone, what you do is you sidestep uh, to, to the right where you get like a a visual uh, point of view uh, towards the, the the barrel, and you shoot at the barrel at the beginning of the third loop. So the explosion would happen in the first second or the second second of the of the loop. <laughs> so by the time the first and second clones arrive to to their barrel, yeah. that barrel has already exploded, <laughs> so they would not die. <laughs> right? Yeah. So imagine what happens to the opponent. So the, the other guy goes like, okay, there's nobody attacking me. Where are they? Boom, there's an explosion. Where are they? Nobody there. With the second loop, he goes like, oh, something fishy is going on. He tries to, to get closer to the, the, the opposing line, right? To yeah. see what's going on. And with the third clone, when... The timeline actually changes and the explosion doesn't happen at that time. He has to face three clones attacking him at the same time. Yeah, exactly. One from the right, one from the left, <laughs> and the actual current one that has the time after destroying the, the barrel. You've actually created a kill zone with your past <laughs> selves. Exactly. <laughs> so that's the kind of crazy things that you can do. Uh, and they are very hard to do because 
like if you miss one shot probably the explosion happened at a different time and yeah. and it breaks everything up but when when they are able to do it uh it's amazing and yeah, and yeah. we thought that it, it was like a uh a strategy that was too op like uh the kind of strategy that you would like to remove from the game but we realized that there are several ways to for the opponent to to counterattack uh, yeah at that you moment. recognize it you go, oh no he's trying to do not today, my friend. When, except, yeah. but that's that strategy, you know. You, yeah. you, it's oh, he's doing that play, so yeah. I know that if he's taking that play, I'm doing this other counterplay. Oh, look, he's doing uh, Sicilian defense. Oh well, I've got a counter for <laughs> exactly. that. Exactly, I'm just exactly. going to get away from the table. No, I'm kidding. Um, so, last question, because all good things must come to an end, and here it is. We talked about it a little bit this morning, but I want to delve into it. The visual design in Quantum League boasts uh, is focused on contrast. Uh, it aids the player to see where their past selves are and knowing where they are in the space, which is relatively confined, which is good, because it's kind of confusing otherwise. How have you found making sure that you are presenting something that's visually engaging whilst not diluting the visuals overall to the point where it it becomes almost a little too uh, artificial. Where have you found that 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 balance? How have you found well, making sure you don't go over that line? Well, you, you should be asking this to to our art director probably. Uh, yeah. But the, the one thing that that I can say is that remember that I I told you that we had uh, three pillars that guided our mm -hmm. our our vision during the course of the development of, of the game. And that, that helped us maintain that vision. And one one of these pillars was we need a fun shooter uh, that that is competitive against other games in the market. The second pillar was uh, time traveling is not a gimmick, like like any anything that we add to the to the time travel mechanic, it has to to have a, a an impact on on the, the strategies that you can take in the game and they have to be meaningful and and they have to really affect the timeline. So it's we, we call it like consequential time traveling. Uh, so and the, and the third pillar was that this needs to be fun to watch. Like the that very first time when we showed the the, the one week prototype internally and it, it ended up with that Magnificent headshot, um, or the, the the crew exploded like they were chanting as if this was an esport, right? Yeah, or, yeah, or a, or a football goal, you know. Yeah, yeah. So we know that we can't make an esport because, uh, like, the ga are the gamers are the ones who who turn a game into an esport. Yeah, right? you, there's so many people who made that mistake going. We're going to make an esport game. No, you can't do that. No, it's, so it's we, the, we, the community we didn't set ourselves. Yeah, yeah we, we knew that. So we didn't set ourselves to try to make an esport. Uh, what we, but what we did try to to do is to make the game fun to watch. And in order to to make it fun to watch, we we knew that it had to be it had to be clean, had to be very clear, and easy to understand. And if you add that to to all the issues that I described before around uh, having three different 
points of views or perspectives of the same 15 seconds uh, all the time, uh, that, that also needed to be clean and, and clear. So we knew that the game uh, had to go for, for that kind of art style. Um, then the, the truth is that this is the first game that we make uh, in-house in Unreal uh, entirely. Um, or the first game that we started, and we did other games that are already released, but the first game that we started uh, in Unreal, uh, so we, we actually learned a lot through the, the development of the game. So, uh, and, and also, th this game is, is something that we self-funded completely all the way. So, in some cases, the decisions were made in order to, to make it uh, feasible, right? We, we knew that we couldn't have, like, photorealistic graphics, but at least we had a, a good, good substance be, behind our, our decision to go for a clean uh, approach to the visuals of the game. Yeah, yeah, it's inspired choice, inspired choice. And it does make oh, it easier to, because you, like I said, if you had a real visuals, say real visuals, more photorealistic ones, it would have detracted from the experience because you wouldn't know where, what's going on because everything would be just probably too brown because nothing you can do about that it's just the world is generally brown yeah so if, that, <laughs> if there's if there's one thing that that we uh like every game that you release uh you learn about stuff and and you you think about what are what are things you, you would have done differently hmm. uh the the thing is that i i think that we could have what we said is that the game is it's a complex game right it's not for everybody uh, it's it's a it's for a niche market, right? Uh, and it's I believe that it's a fantastic innovation and it's super fun. Uh, but we wanted we knew as as it is a multiplayer game that we had to reach a huge audience, right? To to make multiplayer game work. And one of the decisions that we made is that we wanted to make the art style appealing for a for a massive audience, right? And I believe that that, that in one, on one side, it was beneficial for, for the game because it's, it's approachable, right? But on the other side, it, it made the game look or to resemble other games in the market in yeah. some ways. It right? does. It does. Uh, to yeah. the untrained eye, at least. Yes. And, and the problem so. is that, and, and that's also a problem because mm. I remember being at PAX, for example, right? Right. And... I was at PAX, uh, we had a, a big booth, people were like very uh, interested in the game, uh, but I remember seeing some kids like going by and saying, oh, this is just like another Overwatch, right? Yeah. And just, and just walking away. And what happened is that maybe they were looking at the, the stream or at the video for 10 of the, of the 15 seconds within the loop. Yeah. And they, it just looked like another shooter, you know? I know. If you if you didn't stand and and watch until the the time collapses and then there's the rewind and then you see that other clone doing the same actions, yep. you don't get it. No. And that was a, one of the challenges uh, for marketing the game, right? Yeah. To yeah. Uh, you need to play it. Uh, you need you to play, play it. it. You need to play it, which is why I'm, if you play it yeah. three times, yeah, that's your your first step into the fourth dimension and yeah. and understanding what's going on and. Once you get it, like uh, a lot of people really, really love it. Takes about an hour. Do... 
everyone takes about an hour took me an hour yeah, that's cool. to really it, understand it like oh wait oh, you understand what you can do but you don't understand how to exploit that it takes exactly. a very long time to exploit that knowledge you know what's going on within five ten minutes the tutorial is fantastic really impressed with that but what, it, what oh, you, until you play it in, it's, you can't really get an understanding of how you can exploit this extraordinary fact that, yes, you've been playing with 3D for quite some years now, but what about that fourth dimension, eh? What about that much, you know, misunderstood and constantly going forward and apparently it's a river <laughs> time, okay? What about that, you know? Uh, it's, it's, uh, what about, how, do you, how do you manipulate that? We well, can't, it just keeps on going forward. But what if you could? What if you could go make it go back? But then it just creates a rip in time space reality. I know. <laughs> but anyway. Yeah. Uh, technically it was it was very difficult to achieve also. Oh, I bet. Because because we had to we have to record everything that happened. Yeah. Uh, but but not the actual the animations. We have to record the, the physical events because things can change. Yes. You know but you just need to know where people uh, are in space, but oh yeah. Oh. And and Imagine that the physical uh, simulation is non-deterministic. So <laughs> any any minor change to the position of a bullet yeah. over the internet with lag could have terribly different outcomes. So yeah. that was a, a big challenge also. So much for cause and effect. Anyway, <laughs> Quantum League. I did say I got it right again. So I, I, think yeah. I messed up earlier. I apologize. But Quantum League, that's what it's called, everyone. Not the thing with the 1980s sci-fi thing, which is a bit dumb. Quantum League, which is what it's called, is developed by a nimble giant. Great name for a developer. Where do you get the name from, by the way? <laughs> uh, that's that's kind of funny. Uh, so I believe I can say it now, but uh, our studio was named NGD Studios for right. many years. Uh, and the truth is that we... We were named NGD because we were making a, a new develop a new development studio, right? Mm. Uh, our new development group, and as as a team, we couldn't settle on a on a game on a name that everybody liked. Uh, so the documents for starting the the company were signed like, okay, new in Spanish, nuevo grupo de desarrollo, new game development studio. Uh, so. The company was named NGD for many years, and a few years ago we said, "Guys, we can't uh, continue with this name. It's uh, You're not it's very really new anymore." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, and, and like nobody can remember. Most people call call us NDG or something like yeah, that. Yeah, so yeah. we said, "Okay, let's let's uh, do a brainstorm and see what kind of of names we we can come up with." And one of the brainstorm uh, sessions was about trying to come up with names that had the same acronym. Yeah. Right. Uh, and one of the of, of my partners, when uh, when he actually mentioned the, the word nimble, it's not a word that, as a foreign speaker, you are very much aware of. Oh but right. The, the yeah. Defi- yeah. The definition of of nimble. Uh, goes a long way to to explain the the the, the way that that we are as, as a developer like uh we are very agile we uh we can react quickly to things we mm. we can do different things at the same time uh so and on the other side we always had this 
uh, this ambition, like our, our very first game, the very first game that we made is an MMORPG. And, wow. and we made that game out of scratch without Unity, without Unreal. Those were non-existent. We, we built our own engine, right? And we were like seven people. And so we always had this giant, uh, this, this drive to make giant things. So right. Right. that's how Nimble Giant uh, resounded with us and, and we decided to go for, for that name change. That's a, a few great years story. It's, it, it's, <laughs> I have various stories when I ask that question. Everything from, well, it was like 3 a.m. in a pub and thinking, this will do. Just, just, just do that. And, and yeah, then, we didn't have such luck. Didn't have that one. Didn't have that one. But we uh, had to struggle for decades, <laughs> and, then, and then we well, found the name that suited us. So, Quantum League by Nimble Giant is out now on Steam for Windows PC, uh, and uh, it's a fantastic game, and uh, highly, re- highly recommend it. It goes against the grain, which is a good thing, and uh, just to open your mind. And think, what about that former line fourth dimension? Well, now you can answer the question about what would happen if you could only do that move again. Well, you don't have to wonder that now because you're going to have to again and again and again. Um, Andres, it's been wonderful having you on the show. Oh, it was my pleasure. Thank you very much for this. You're more than welcome to come back because we do have return guests. We've been around for a very long time. And, uh, yeah, we, we've had a lot of, I think, the fourth return guest is our current record. But uh, so you come back and tell us about whatever you're working on next. Uh, sure. But in, but in the meantime, thank you very, very much. No, thank you. Thanks a lot. You have been listening to the Sausage Factory podcast, part of the Canaan Rinse Collective. Support us for just two US dollars per month at patreon.com forward slash Rinse for early, extended and exclusive podcasts. Find us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Twitch, YouTube and at our website, canaanrinse.com. <laughs>